This episode is sponsored by Macmillan Audio. I love that audiobooks can make anything from waiting in the school pickup line to folding laundry a little more fun. And there are so many great new audiobooks coming out this month, including Mame by Jessica George, about a people-pleasing millennial and self-described late bloomer living in London who decides she's ready to experience some important firsts, from finding a flat share to pushing for more recognition in her career and throwing herself into online dating. I love traveling to England through books and the narration from Heather Ajapong, a British Ghanaian actress and photographer, really adds to the reading experience. Start listening to Mame by Jessica George now, wherever audiobooks are sold. Hello and welcome to A Bookish Home. I'm your host, librarian and writer Laura Zaro-Kopinski, and today my guest is Ariana Warsaw-Van Rauch, author of Declassified, a low-key guide to the high-strung world of classical music. In a starred review, Booklist says of Declassified, cue vigorous applause and a standing ovation because Declassified is an enchanting and exhilarating tour de force. Ariana earned a bachelor's degree and master of music from the Juilliard School and has performed as a classical violinist in top venues around the world, including Carnegie Hall, Boston Symphony Hall, and the Ravinia, Verbier, La Jolla Summerfest, and Aspen Music Festivals. She's toured with such legendary artists as jazz trumpeter Chris Bodie and Sir James Galway. Declassified is her first book. Ariana, welcome to A Bookish Home and congratulations on Declassified. Thank you so much and thank you for having me. Yes, I um, I am not someone who thought they needed a book about classical music, but from the first page, I was completely hooked by this book and I'm so glad I read it. I'm sure listeners will be too. I feel like I know so much more now. I have a little confidence where I could maybe start listening or maybe go, um, you know, hear music performed live, which I know is some of, you know, why you wrote it. Um, and it's just also so funny and entertaining. So I think listeners are really going to want to pick this one up. So could you tell us just a little bit about your background and what made you want to write the book? And I'm definitely interested in some of the like misconceptions you think people have about classical music. Well, it's really, it's funny because I, when I look back on it now, it makes so much sense that I would write this book. My dad is a pianist, or at least he was a pianist. Now he's mostly golfing in his free time. And my mom is a writer and she was an English teacher. And um, so I feel like this book is really like the culmination of so many lessons that they taught me growing up. Um, I think, you know, growing up as the daughter of a pianist, I was exposed to this music from day one. I loved it instantly. But most importantly, I think I was, I I had an advantage over some other people when it comes to this listening, just because I felt like I was allowed, I felt entitled to this music, right? I felt like um, I had every right to be listening to it. It was the music that was played in my house. And those were my associations with it. And I think, as so as I went through um, my training as a violinist, so I started playing violin when I was two and a half. Uh, and then I decided to become a violinist a bit later when I was seven. And I went through conservatory. And uh, this sort of took me a little bit away from that first feeling of of listening to music and more like, you know, I went deep into the industry and, and things did change for me then. 
and my associations with the music also changed as I was, as I focused more on performing rather than listening. And at a certain point it, it, I, I realized that there are a lot of people out there who also have associations that don't allow them to appreciate this music. And for me, I, I really did get to the point where my associations with performing blocked a lot of my ability to, to just enjoy listening. So that, that story is kind of what made me want to write this book where people could be introduced to the music, where they would maybe feel a little bit more included and welcome than they sometimes feel just because of the way that classical music is so often portrayed in uh, the media. And, you know, it's, it's a little bit the way it's a pretty veiled industry and just the way that a lot of concerts are put on, it makes people feel like they need to know a certain amount in order to attend. So, yeah. And, you know, I think in my mind, particularly before reading, I just picture sort of a fancy, you know, restaurant or something with classical music just like tinkling in the background. (laughs) um, Didn't really know much at all. And um, I even just enjoyed sort of the... I love history. And so it was interesting. I never really thought about the fact that classical music you talk about, I mean, it's referring to just hundreds of years of all different kinds of music. I'd love if you could tell listeners a little bit about that, because I thought that was so helpful. And I I thought it was funny, too, to hear about the different periods that you hate and (laughs) uh, the ones you like more. And if you could tell us a little bit about those different times. Sure. Uh, yeah. So as you say, um, one of the first points that I make is that classical music is not really a genre. It's just a collection of all of the music that was written from, you know, the medieval period all the way through the present day when we still have contemporary classical music being composed. And this time span encompasses so many different styles. And I think a lot of people don't realize how much variety there is. You know, when they think classical music, they think exactly of what you what you were saying. This whatever the tinkling music they've heard in the in the background at restaurants, at weddings. Um, there are like two pieces of classical music used in all of the movies between 1980 something and 2000. It's always Mozart's Eine kleine Nachtmusik and one of the Vivaldi Four Seasons. And this really, I think it leads a lot of people to have a skewed view of what the music is like. It's true, Mozart was a, a major composer, but he his style represents only one, one part of one style, one one compositional period. You know, it's a it's like a point in history. It's not the whole the whole expanse of the music. And also, while I'm speaking about this piece, um, he wrote Einklein and Nachtmusik to be background music. So it's not supposed to be the most engaging, the most, it's not the most complex or um, intricate piece he wrote. It's, it's supposed to be pleasant and in the background. So it's, I, I think even within, you know, a composer's canon, there is so much range. And then when we think about the differences between the composers who wrote back in, you know, the 1500s versus the composers who are writing in the 1920s, it's just a huge, huge difference. And I I find it difficult when people say that they hate classical music, or, you know, even when I say I love classical music, because you can't possibly feel that way about the whole of, 
of what this music encompasses. Yeah, so, I thought that was so helpful to get to think about, you know, and you give some music lists in the book too. Like you need mm-hmm. to go and sort of sample different periods and different composers and like figure out what your taste is. It's not that broad stroke of I either love it or I hate it. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I actually wanted when I was first writing that chapter, I tried to do this thing so that you could just like find out what the music from each period sounded like in five minutes. I wanted to do like time jumping through all of the eras, but it was just impossible because there are so many great pieces and I couldn't choose just one to represent the style. So I had to do lists, but yeah, if anyone goes through the book and they look at the playlist from each, each period that's described, then they'll be able to get just a a quick overview of what the sounds were, what the styles were, uh, the harmonies. And it's really, it's, it's amazing when you look at them back to back because you really do see the evolution and the difference. Yeah. I, I need to go and, um, you know, start looking more up on Spotify. And it made me wonder, are there any um, like existing Spotify or any kind of playlist for the book? Or like if you yes. get the audio book, does it um, play no, some I wanted, of them? I wanted the audio book <laughs> to have some of it, but- just Oh, you probably the, need the rights, don't exactly. you? Exactly. It, it would yeah. have been very, very expensive. So, um, <laughs> but yeah, there, there, is, there are playlists for these periods that you can find. Nice. On, that um, Yeah. Well, I also loved um, kind of getting clued in on some of the big characters in the classical music world, like names that, you know, you know, those of us on the outside sort of hear about, but don't know that much about. And I'm always particularly interested in the women um, Mm -hmm. and their lives. And you had some really interesting women that you mentioned kind of going into the different um, historical figures. Could you talk a little bit about Fanny Mendelssohn? I don't know if I'm saying mm-hmm. her name right, but um, yes, I that's her exactly story right. sounded interesting. <laughs> yeah, Fanny Mendelssohn was Felix Mendelssohn's sister. And she was also a, a very brilliant uh, pianist and composer. And she's not known as well because at the, at that time she wasn't supposed to, or her family didn't want her performing publicly or, or being a professional composer. So she studied, but it was sort of like decorative. Right. But she, her teacher, um, and this is also in the book, one of, one of the, so I'm forgetting his first name. Zelter was his last name. He was the teacher of both Fanny and Felix. And he, thought actually at one time that Fanny was the most gifted of the Mendelssohn children, that as a composer, she had, she showed the most promise. And I think that's really interesting. And she did in fact compose a huge number of pieces. It's just that she didn't develop, she didn't allow herself to, um, to create with the same goals in mind. So now her music is actually starting to be performed quite a bit more. And that's great to see. It's oh. just that during her lifetime, she wasn't she wasn't recognized for her compositional skills as much. But she was considered a really important figure in the classical scene. So she was still consulted, and people would ask for her opinion. And it's just she wasn't she wasn't credited or paid, so right or allowed to maybe become as um, impressive as she could have been. I kept thinking exactly. as I was reading, yeah, I kept thinking as I was reading that part. There's a section in a room of one's own um, where Virginia, Virginia Woolf talks about like, what if Shakespeare had a sister with as much talent 
and it, and she never would have been able to become, you know, as extraordinarily, you know, renowned or, or have that, have that talent used in the same way, um, just exactly. being a woman at the time. So it just makes you wonder like how many women would have been famous composers in history had they, you know, had the chance. I'm but. sure. And I mean, th- so there is in the medieval period, there was Hildegard von Bingen and she's one of the most famous um, composers from that time. And certainly one of the most famous uh, female composers, but it's, there's a huge gap after that. And then there just aren't many who are remembered. But what's interesting is that Clara Schumann, who was, um, who overlapped with Fanny Mendelssohn, Clara Schumann, now we call her Clara Schumann, but before she was Clara Wieck, um, her husband, Robert Schumann is a very famous composer whom we remember, but she also wrote really beautiful music. And actually in her case, the reason we don't remember her music as much is that she was primarily a performer and she actually did have an incredible career. She was a prodigy and she was performing all over for Kings and Queens and all of the great concert halls already by the time she was 11 and 12 years old. And in fact, um, one of the reasons that her future husband, Robert Schumann became a composer instead of a pianist, was that he heard Clara Schumann play the piano when she was a kid. And he realized he was never going to be as good as she was. Oh, wow. (laughs) So it actually caused him to pivot and change to the career that we now know him for. And this, I mean, this Clara is an incredible figure because she also, she's a really important um, person in the life of Johannes Brahms as well, who's again, one of the most famous composers. So Clara was really, she was this, exception for the time because whereas Fanny you know her family wasn't a fan of her career Clara's family actually pushed her into having a career in music so she was able to 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 do things that other women at the time were not able to do that they you know that wasn't normal that wasn't socially accepted and um because her husband, Robert Schumann, eventually ended up in an asylum, then Clara was also the primary breadwinner for a lot of her kids' lives. So interesting. And Mm -hmm. as we're thinking about, um, you know, them performing all over Europe and everything, and I know you've done that as well, and I think you're you're still living in Germany now. I'm curious what you see in terms of, um, are there different attitudes in Europe about classical music? Are people more raised on it in different ways than here in the U.S.? Or what do you kind of find the different attitudes to be? Mm, it's great that you bring this up because this is also, you know, when we were talking about entitlement before and how I felt like I was entitled to listen to this music, but a lot of people in the States don't have that feeling. Um, in Germany, it's completely different because uh it's such a part of the history here. And so so much of the classical music repertoire is um, comprised of these German or Germanic composers. Like Beethoven was from Bonn and Mozart's Austrian and Brahms German. So you have a lot of these big people, these big names sort of dominating the industry are from this area. And so people grow up with a sense that it's theirs, it's their music. And I, I remember when um, I first started dating my husband, Stefan, who's a lawyer and his parent, you know, he, he doesn't know anything about classical music. He never studied it. Um, his 
I think his grandmother liked it, but he never really listened to it with her and his parents don't listen to it at all. And, but he, he was studying for his legal exams. And I remember we were on a call one time and he said that he was going to take a break and go to this concert. And he said it was like, he wasn't going to be back until three in the morning or something. So I assumed that it was like, a rock concert or something, you know, cause he's saying he's going to blow off steam, like, you know, studying from his hands, blah, blah, blah. Anyway. And it was actually the reason it was until such a late hour is because it was an unstaged Wagner opera. Like oh, I, wow. I can barely sit through a, a fully staged Wagner opera. They're hours and hours long. And um, he was just like with a friend going to see this total, you know, no set, no costumes, just, just the music itself being performed and that was really surprising to me because I don't I couldn't imagine someone his age going to a performance like that in the states I can't imagine especially not to like blow off steam exactly exactly yeah (laughs) um yeah that's really interesting you know I thought hearing the way you sort of weave in your own personal um, musical journey with, you know, everything you're sort of helping us learn about um, was so fascinating. You talk about the way that um, you would find your particular instrument. So for you, the violin, and um, I'm also in the um, Boston area. I know you in terms of getting your um, instrument at a place in, I think, Boston's Back Bay. And it felt very, you referenced this, that it's, um, it feels very Harry Potter, like finding your wand. <laughs> and I would love, uh-huh. love to hear about that whole process. And I also was so fascinated hearing about like how expensive it all is. I just had no idea about that whole world. Yeah, I mean, it's something that I don't think, you know, most people wouldn't encounter it. So why why would you know? But it's it's crazy. I, I think a lot of people have heard of Stradivarius violins. Um, and these are sort of at the top, along with Guarneri del Jesus. These are just incredibly expensive instruments. But um, all, all of the, we call them concert instruments, are really outrageous. So, so it's kind of, it's different than other... I think with the wind and brass instruments, they're more reasonable. They're still expensive though, if they're good. Uh, mm-hmm. But when it comes to the stringed instruments, it's really like it. So when I started as a serious violinist, when I was still quite young, maybe nine or 10, then I think I had a violin that was already $10,000, which is crazy to think about, you know, that you entrust something so valuable to a child of that age. And, you know, my parents weren't, they were both teachers, they weren't super wealthy, this wasn't very comfortable for them. But it's just what they were told that they had to do in order to give me a shot at having the career that I said I wanted. And um, so it was tremendously uncomfortable. And then by the time I was 13, I think, then yeah, that was when I looked at this at the shop, it's called Ruining and Sons. And they have gorgeous instruments and just I don't know I don't know if they have I don't know if it's normal to visit a shop like this if you're not <laughs> buying an instrument but I feel like everyone should visit because it just smells so good it smells like varnish <laughs> and resin it's so nice and um 
And I went there and it was such a magical experience just knowing that I was going to walk away with like my, my instrument soulmate, you know, because there really is, there's like chemistry that happens and it has to, it has to feel right. And that's why the Harry Potter reference, it was the best I could think of because, you know, you, 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 in that scene at Ollivander's, you have him trying all the different wands and then it just, when he gets to the right one, then he feels it in his, in his hands. And it's like that with instruments as well. Although you do also have to test them then in hot in bigger spaces so that so you'll have someone listen to how you sound because it it's also hard to tell what it sounds like when it's right under your ear mm-hmm. but um but yeah so so then by the time I was that age then the violin had well, the level of violins had gotten a lot higher and the instruments had gotten much more expensive and um yeah the violin they got me I mean I, so they just said when I bought it that if I if someday if I ever found someone I wanted to marry, then I would just know have to know that they were not going to pay for my wedding because <laughs> this violin. You got the violin. Cost, yeah, exactly. Because <laughs> it costs so much. I, I was going to say too. I thought it was really interesting because the instruments are so expensive, and there are those really prestigious ones. I thought it would be a little bit like how like people will try to steal famous art and things, but you were mm-hmm. saying how like the thefts of those expensive instruments never really wind up working out for the thieves. Mm-hmm. Could you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, it's, it's very, so there have been some successful thefts and I go over them in the book um, as well. Cause I don't know why it's exciting to think about it, but it is for some it reason. Is. And I think it's actually <laughs> a book, um, the violin conspiracy that is, that involves a theft. Uh, so if anyone's Ooh. curious, they can read that as well. And this, but basically uh, there are just so few of these instruments in the world and they're all registered and they've all been authenticated and um, documented. So, you know, we're talking with the top strads and Del Jesus, they, they can sell for as much as 20 million, sometimes even more. So, um, I mean, publicly, the, the public auction prices, I think the high is 18 point something million, but for private sales, they can go up quite a bit higher. So it's just a huge amount of money. And as you say, that's tempting, right? They're very portable. <laughs> it's part of, <laughs> part of the deal. But they, you can't, you know, I, I can't recognize a Strad from another old Italian instrument or even a fake Strad that was made recently. It takes an expert, someone who knows what they look like and all of the people who are capable of distinguishing between these violins are well-versed in which violins exist and who owns them and which of them have been stolen. And no one's going to want to pay for an instrument that hasn't been authenticated by one of these people. So it's just, you know, you could turn around and try to sell it, but then, and I think that actually has happened also several times that people have stolen the instrument successfully and then they tried to sell them, but then they immediately go to jail because (laughs) the person they bring it to to sell knows that it's this violin. So. Yeah. yeah, There's so much, I was just going to say in the book, there's so much like, um, just intrigue and um, interesting tidbits that I would never have known about. And um, you're so funny writing. And I just wondered, you know, we know all this now and the book has gotten rave reviews and everyone's loving it. 
Was it a difficult pitch at first to say that you were going to try to write a book about classical music? Like, did you have some editors or agents say, nobody's going to read about that? So this is, I I found this whole, the whole pitching of the book was so fascinating for me. Because I think that publishing is also so veiled. You don't, you know, if you're an outsider, you don't really see how it works. So I had no idea how any of this worked. And I was really lucky um, that I had a literary agent who really believed in the project. So she's this wonderful person. And I had already been communicating with her about other things that I'd written. And so we were in touch. And then when I had this idea for the book, I came to her and we discussed and she was instantly on board after I sent her some sample chapters. And I think that her belief in the project really helped to sell it to our publishers. So, but she did encounter, I mean, she, when she was writing to these, to these big publishing names, she got some responses back that were just like, no, we don't publish books about classical music. (laughs) So, so for sure there was a bias, but then other other publishers, I think, saw it, and like mine was one, I think they saw that maybe there was an opening here, because there aren't other books that are quite like this, that are, you know, it's it's designed to be friendly for people who are not at all versed in classical music, but it also goes into a lot of detail that normally these sort of classical music for dummies books would not go into, because um, I think there are very few performers writing to begin with, because they're busy performing. Right. Um, but also, it's just, yeah, I, I, I made it personal. I, I tried to pick the tidbits that I found most interesting, and then include them and then go into a lot. Yeah, it took, I mean, it took a long time to try to figure out how to write some of this for, for people who didn't have the same background that I had. And sometimes I had to ask you know, my husband or someone else to read to say, like, can you understand this? Does this make sense to you? Uh, and because that's very, you know, having that um, perspective is difficult. But luckily, my agent is also she's sort of like the perfect target reader, because she herself is not into classical music, but her in-laws are. So it's like exactly the book that she wanted and needed. And that really helped. And then her passion in selling it is is really what what made it happen, I think. That's so great. And yeah, I definitely, it's just fun to be with a nonfiction book. I love sort of being entertained while I'm also getting to be nerdy and learn things. (laughs) So it was lots of fun. And I, I wondered, obviously, the topic, you know, is all things you're drawing on from your musical background. But I was curious, sort of just the craft of writing. Did your musical training help with that at all? I sort of imagined like, you were, you'd maybe be able to be like a very disciplined writer or I don't know. I just wondered how your training kind of has influenced you as a writer. Yeah, for sure. There was a lot of carryover in terms of the the skill set that I developed as a violinist. I mean, first of all, from, as you say, so the discipline from the most basic level, I think a lot of writers struggle with the work ethic, the trying to go back to it day in and day out. And for me, that's like, I mean, if I don't, (laughs) if I don't do something like writing every day or practicing, then I start like destroying things in my house because (laughs) I have all of this energy that needs to be channeled productively. And um, 
yeah, there's a story also in the book about like what I did to my wedding dress because, because I was not, (laughs) I wasn't focused on anything at the time. So it's important for me to have an outlet. And also, also I feel like the actual work of formulating sentences sometimes it, it does. I think there's carryover there too. First of all, there's the rhythm. So I think that when I'm writing a sentence, I want it to flow. Like when I read it, I want it to feel like, like it sounds, the pacing is the way that I want. And I do think, I think in terms of meter and rhythm and it's not like I haven't written out rhythms that I'm trying to fill or anything, but I do think that it has an effect on the way that I form the way that I choose words. Uh, But I also think just the process of, you know, polishing of like, is this the tweaking? Is this the right way of doing it? Or like, should I go back and try it this way? And just like the puzzling out. I think that that is similar to practicing, but I actually, for me, I enjoy it much more because I know that when I make a sentence, then it will stay that way. And I don't have to worry (laughs) about executing it then in a live performance, which was, you know, always for, that was a big challenge for me. Right. Just the performance aspect of, of the violin. That's so interesting though. I wouldn't have thought about it in terms of the rhythm and the sound, but that makes, that makes total sense. Um, Well, I'm just curious too. I know the book has sort of just come out and you're still promoting. Have you thought about what maybe a next um, project would be? Cause I'm, I'm eager for the, for the next book. (laughs) (laughs) That's very sweet. Um, Yes, I have. I've, I mean, again, I, I have this like need to create things or try to, to do things that are productive, even if they turn out not to be productive. So I feel like as soon as I got my first break in writing, like when my editor had this book while she was working on it, then I was already like writing out next book ideas and bothering my agent with them because, because <laughs> it's just, you know, and also as you write the, as I was writing this book, then a lot of, ideas came to me that I couldn't use that I was sort of excited about, but I couldn't really explore them enough. So then all of those turned into their own ideas. And now I do have some that are, that are, I don't want to say they're in the works, but they're, we're mulling over them. Oh, exciting. (laughs) That'll be fun. Um, Well, lastly, I always just like to hear what authors have been reading um, for themselves. Are there any books you'd want to recommend to listeners? Um, yeah, so, well, this, this violent conspiracy book is supposed to be excellent and I haven't gotten around to reading it, but I, this is like on my to read list. So I would probably think that anyone who's interested in my book could also like this one. Um, I also, for re, for me recently, I've been reading and rereading Dreyer's English, which is, I think, like one of the most hilarious and awesome grammar books ever. I also really like Mary Norris's um, uh, Confessions of a Comma Queen. It's also very funny and also very helpful for writers. (laughs) And uh, oh, Bianca Bosker's Cork Dork is really fantastic. And Julie Skolnick, who's a friend of mine, wrote this book, Paris Blue, which is a memoir of the time she spent in Paris as so as a young flute player, she did this year during her college career in Paris, and she had this like dramatic affair with a married man, and it's like very juicy. So I'm not Ooh. fully through it, but I'm in the middle of it, and I'm I'm liking it. It's it's really 
it's um, like a really gripping kind of like fast read. So that's going to be fun to finish. Oh, I've got to pick that one up. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well, I can definitely link to all of those if listeners want to check them out. And um, this has just been such a treat to get to um, hear you talk more about Declassified. I highly recommend that people pick it up or um, place your hold with your local library. And I also, um, I know we mentioned the audiobook. I just imagine that it's wonderful on audio. So I would recommend that as well. Thank you so much. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for coming on and taking the time and um, best of luck with um, all of your book promotion and, and writing the next project. Thank you so much. For links to all of the books mentioned on this week's episode, you can visit abookishhome.com. If you are enjoying the show, I hope you take a minute to subscribe and also rate and review wherever you get your podcast. And if you enjoyed this episode, I would encourage you to share it on social media to help other people find the show and this episode. Thanks for listening, everyone, and happy reading.